0: attention tonight to our next psalm, psalm number 5, psalm 5. And uh, let's read that together. Psalm 5, give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning, give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Let them ever sing for joy, and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Tonight we're going to look at this uh, psalm, and uh, many think that this is still within the the ballpark of uh, um, David's dealings with Absalom, and they think that because this that some of the themes are similar, that it's kind of taking in the same uh, uh, situation. And that may or may not be the case. Uh, but uh, the psalm stands really on its own. And David here uh, models for us uh, prayers. And we need to remember that uh, as we're going through these psalms, the psalms teach us to pray. The, 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 that's one of the things that uh, David or uh, the, the disciples asked Jesus, "Lord, teach us to pray." And one of those things that Jesus taught his disciples to pray was, "Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done." And I want you, as we go through this psalm together, to think about what we've been talking about in Proverb, in, in the Book of Revelation, rather, as the prayers of the saints ascend to God. And as that that, that that those prayers ascend to God, God then begins to respond by bringing His purposes to bear upon the earth in salvation and judgment. So again, picture in your mind, here are the prayers of the saints arising to God. O Lord, judge, how long, O Lord, will you not avenge the prayers of your, uh, avenge the blood of your people? And those Prayers in Revelation are prayers as we've been seeing, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. In order, in other words, Lord, come, whether that be in salvation and judgment, but come. And uh, we see these prayers are bold prayers. And they're prayers for the kingdom, they are prayers for the church. They're not prayers, individual prayers. Lord, I'm going through a hard time. Or Lord, that guy at work has given me a hassle. You know, just rub him out. <laughs> it's not that kind of thing. It's the prayers for the glory of God and for the good of his kingdom. And that's what we're seeing in this psalm. As David is modeling for us in this prayer, a prayer that we can pray. These are these psalms are psalms that we can pray to God, and we can challenge ourselves. I know I've been as I've been studying these psalms, I've been challenged myself and saying, you know what? I don't pray like that, and I, I don't uh, incorporate these prayers of of judgment in my praying because we are so uh, conditioned to think that we are never to pray. God's judgment. And yet it's something that has to be handled very carefully, but at the same time, we cannot get away from the fact that these prayers, not only in the Psalms, but even in the New Testament, even in the, 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 the material that we're going through in the morning, the prayers of the saints, the incense, which is which is are the prayers as they're going up before God, how long, O God, before you judge? And then chapters 8 and 9 is God unleashing judgment upon the world through, in a, as we've been seeing, through a direct answer to the prayers of the saints. Now, that is territory that we're not sometimes comfortable in. But we have to ask ourselves, should we not move into that territory and learn to be comfortable in it. Learn to wield those words wisely and compassionately, but nevertheless to you, to speak those words. And here David is consumed with a, 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 a vision of God and of God's kingdom. And David is showing us here uh, what it means to have a God-saturated life to love God, to know God, and to pray concerning God's enemies and what those prayers then ought to mean for us. And so David is someone who is completely given over to God in his prayers and indeed in his groaning. And so the first thing that we want to see is in this psalm, the attitude of the godly. The attitude of the godly. It's one of faith expressed in continual prayer. Give ears to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you I pray, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. And so you have this prayer of intense emotion and energy poured out from God's, uh, from David's heart toward God. He's praying not only uh, that God would hear his verbal words, but his nonverbal words, his groaning. His groaning. And that is something wonderful, not just something in the Old Testament that is uh, uh, given for us, but also in the New. Uh, famously in in uh, Romans chapter 8, um, he, he says there, uh, likewise, the Spirit helps in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And so that, that interaction, uh, God can hear. You might be sitting there, you, not, you may not be able to utter a word, and, but you're groaning, there's a, there's, a, there's a Spirit within you, a Spirit of longing, Uh, Maybe of heartbrokenness, or it may be one of joy. But David here is saying, Consider my groaning, consider my sighing. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you, O God. This is what it, this is the kind of mindset that David has. And so he says, Consider my groaning. How wonderful when we can't pray, we're sitting there, we can't even open our mouths sometimes because we're so discouraged or we're so, we don't know what to say. We're faced with a situation, we don't even know how to articulate it. And yet the Spirit of God in us is working. He's taking our words before the throne of grace. And it's the Spirit of God who understands us and understands God. So even though we are uh, quiet, Even though we can't speak, God hears our groaning. And so David expresses a great familiarity with the Lord here, doesn't he? Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Just like a parent will understand a child. A child might be groaning, giving words. They're not saying anything, but they're making these noises that are are worrisome to the parent. And the parent kind of knows through the sounds that they're making what their need is. And David expresses that confident familiarity before God that he understands his groaning heart. But his prayer is one of faith expressed in continual prayer. Before David could begin the day, he was conversing with God. Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. And these are, These aren't just poetic words. These are words of instruction to us to say... How do we acknowledge the beginning of our day? We acknowledge at the beginning of our day and how important it is. Sometimes we say, well, we can pray at different times, and that's true, but it's so important for us as we begin our day to lay things out before God, our work, the things that we're going to do to give the unknown over to God. We don't know what's coming. We don't know what's coming down the road. We don't know if the person um, coming toward us in the car is of a right mind we don't know we we need wisdom and awareness in all the situations of life and so we commit our day to god and this is what david is doing and if it is true that this psalm is still within the the orbit of the rebellion of absalom against him how david earnestly seeks god then uh, right from the very beginning of the day before the sun is up David is calling out to God. He's groaning after God. And he is calling upon God to hear him. And he says, uh, For uh, to you I pray, my King and my God. David understood that though he was the King of Israel, that God was the true King. That God was the true King and Lord of all, all of uh, Israel. But David is expressing these words, my. We can all, we need only go to the 23rd Psalm where he says the Lord is my shepherd. That, that word my is very important in the Psalms because it spelled out the personal commitment that God had to, to each one of his children. And so David is saying here, you are my Lord and my God. Spurgeon says here that here is a grand argument why God should answer prayer. Because He is our King and our God. We are not aliens to Him. He is the King of our country. Kings are expected to hear the appeals of their own people. We're not strangers to Him. We are His worshippers. And He is our God. Ours by covenant, by promise, by oath, by blood. That's a powerful argument. Uh, 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 a word there that Spurgeon gives, a a wonderful commentary on that. And sometimes we hear those words and we say, oh, well, it's just something that David says, my king and my God. But no, he's appealing unto him as one who is in covenant with him by oath, as he says here, by covenant, by promise, by oath, and by blood. You are my God, you are my king by blood. By the blood of your Son. how our, our hearts are moved when we hear our children say that. They call us by name, mom or dad. or uh, you know, we, we recognize that they are our child and we are their parent. And David is saying the same thing, my God, uh, my king and my God. So it's a faith expressed in continual prayer. It's a faith expressed uh, through sacrifice. In the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Well, our bodies, Paul says in Romans chapter 12, are to be offered up to God as a living sacrifice. But each and every day we prepare a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving unto God. How that ought to season our prayers, right? When we're crying out to God. What a difference that makes. Is it any wonder that Paul, in his letters, is always saying, with thanksgiving, with thanksgiving, with thanksgiving. That, what are you doing? You're preparing a sacrifice. You don't have to have a lamb. You don't have to have an animal. You prepare the sacrifice by say, meditating, saying, oh, God has been so good to me. The goodness of God leads us to repentance. Oh, God, you, you see, that's what's happening here. When you meditate on God's goodness, you're preparing a sacrifice of thanksgiving in your heart, and you're bringing it to God. And you're laying it, Lord, I thank you for your mercy, for your goodness, your grace. Better than any lamb or bull or goat or any animal of the Old Testament is the heartfelt praise of the children of God. Make sure that's a part of your praying, even when you're in those desperate situations. Try to steel yourself, and and before you just launch into recounting your desperation, to, to remember, to stop, and to give thanks, to offer that sacrifice before God of praise and thanksgiving to Him. And so David says, even in his desperation, even in his groaning, he doesn't forget to prepare the sacrifice. In the morning, I prepare the sacrifice for you and watch. Listen to those words. Let's not carefully run over them. He's hurting. He's groaning. He's in a situation where he's desperately crying out to God. But God is basically saying to him, hang on a second. Remember who I am. Give thanks for past mercies. And let those now dictate how you pray to me. Let that soothe your worried mind. Let that uh, ease your guilty mind. He says, in the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you. What a beautiful picture. That's again a model for you and I when we get up in the morning, how easy it is for us to run out of the house in the morning or just become so busy. Yet in the morning, God calls us to that altar and he expects us to lay upon that altar our thanksgiving. Lord thank you for another night that you've spared me. Uh, thank you that I can get out of bed. Thank you that I have food on my table. Thank you that I have a family that I have friends, that I have a church that I have all, we, the, it's countless. Thank you that we live in PEI thank you that we live in Canada that we're not uh, under the thumb of a totalitarian government. Thank you Lord for all of these things. You're preparing a sacrifice even before the worries of the day comes, even before all those start crashing in around you, you've prepared the sacrifice and now it's going up before God. And it's a sweet smell to him. David understands that even as a personal worshiper. He doesn't have to wait until he gets to the temple. He can lift up and prepare those sacrifices right away. And so uh, David is a, uh, one who, uh, he, this is his attitude, one of continual prayer, one that offers sacrifice, one where he is watching for God, one where he's seeking God, but one that is also one of faith that is established through God's grace. This is, this is his attitude. His attitude is one of faith based on grace. Before he gets into praying about the wicked and his enemies, he has to remember that he himself is where he is because of God's grace. Notice those words, verse 7, But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down to your holy temple in the fear of you. You now, there's two people contrasted here. There's the godly and then there's the wicked. And David differentiates himself from the wicked through his faith in God and his approach to God. His trust in God. David, of all people, knows uh, the, the, uh, the, the state of his heart from time to time. He knows his own the weakness and his own moral integrity. He himself knows who God really is. David's not simply saying, "Well, I am better than all these people." No, David, as we know, in quite in bold letters in the Bible, knew of his his own heart. Psalm 51, Psalm 32, on and on it goes. Many other psalms that recount David's own personal sin. So, what differentiates himself? What differentiates him from the wicked? But I through the abundance of your steadfast love. It's a, based on God's grace, God's love. Just like going back to Psalm 3. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for Him in God. But then verse 3, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. You see, that's the difference. But you. And here he's saying, but I... And it's not I myself because of what I... have No, I'm throwing myself on your mercy. I come to you through the abundance of your steadfast love, and it's through that I make approach unto you. But the wicked don't care about those things. They have no regard for your love. They have no regard for your goodness and your mercy. They cast those out, and they have nothing to do with them. David knows that he is no different from the wicked apart from the grace of God. And that again becomes part of our sacrifice, doesn't it? Our sacrifice of thanks. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. So this is what separates David from from the wicked. But I will come into your house according to your, in the abundance of your steadfast love. Paul says in Titus chapter 3, But when the goodness and loving kindness of a God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. According to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. What separates Paul from the ungodly? it again is just the same as it was for King David. And so the Old Testament, for the Old Testament believer, the the ground for salvation was the same. God's steadfast love, God's grace, God's mercy. That's the only thing. David knew that if it were not for that, he would be just as wicked and evil as all the other people that he is now praying about. And so this is David's attitude. This is the attitude of David as he comes before God in prayer. He's all, acknowledging all of these things. He comes to God quickly. He comes to God humbly under, this, under the, the umbrella of God's grace. He comes to God with a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. You see, he's making his approach in prayer to God even in this time of difficulty. Even in this time when his heart feels in in many ways, overwhelmed. He knows he has to stop and watch himself. You see, it matters how we come before God. And so, uh, this is how David prays. And he also, he then goes on to recount what God is like. Verse 4. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those whose lips, who, who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. When David is in trouble then, his, his knowledge and his understanding of God emboldens his approach to God. If David himself is a victim of evil, if God's people, if it's, if it's uh, under the, the threat of Absalom, we know that David is praying not only for himself, but for the people of God and for the name of God. David is emboldened because he is praying to a holy God. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. That, again, is a key to our approach to God and our prayers. Lord, there's this evil that's going on in the world. Lord, this, there's this evil in my heart or this evil in, in our society. and Lord, you are, you are of pure eyes to, than to behold iniquity. See, this is what God is saying when he says, come at me with words. Come at me. Come, come toward me. I'm giving you the apparatus. Now, come at me and tell me who i am tell me what i am remind me put me in remembrance this is what god says in his word don't just meander around in your prayers just it's, it's please think of it in terms of the we god hears our groanings on the one hand but that doesn't exempt us in the in the good times for being lazy in our prayers either just thinking of whatever comes to our head. No, we go to the Word and we say, this is the language that God wants to hear from me. He wants me to tell Him what He's like. Doesn't God know? Yeah, but He wants to hear it from you. And the more you say it, the more it's going to begin to work like leaven into your own mind and into your own conscience. So God is saying, this is what I'm like, now come at me. And David is coming at God. God, there's this evil that's in your kingdom. There's this man that has risen up against you. There's these people that are speaking out lies. And there's no fear of the Lord before them. And you, Lord, you're a God that does not delight in wickedness, and evil will not dwell with you. When was the last time you prayed that? I asked myself the same question this week as I was going through this psalm. I don't pray that very often. But my question is, should I? And I say, yes, I should. Yes, I should. And this is what David is saying. You, as, as Habakkuk said, you are of pure eyes and to behold iniquity he is describing the wicked. He goes on later in verse 9 to describe what they're like. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. And that was, uh, that's what the verse that Paul uses there in Romans chapter 3 to describe the depravity of man. He's taking it from Psalm 5. Their throat is an open grave. In other words, they're bent bent on destroying by their mouths the people around them through their lies and through their accusations. These are the kind of people, Lord, that we're dealing with. And Lord, these people have risen up. They've rebelled against you. This is where it's coming from. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out here, listen, for they have rebelled against you. He's not saying, Lord, that guy at the gas station cheated me out of $10 and I should have gotten $10 more gas than I... No, he's not, not talking about petty grievances. He's full of the passion for God's glory. And are we not moved in the same way when we hear the name of Jesus being taken in vain? when we hear of the God whom we love hearing His name desecrated and run into the ground, do we not mount up with a holy indignation inside of us? Well, we should. And this is how then the people of God begin to carefully make use of these words and begin to distinguish between personal Uh, offenses against us. No. In those situations we pray, Lord, please forgive this person. Help me to build a bridge with this person. Help me to forgive this person. But there is a higher cause going on when it comes to the kingdom of God and the name of God and the attacking of God's people as we're seeing around the world as Tim was praying for a few moments ago. When the wicked institutionally and nationally and organizationally rise up against the people of God with slander and hatred and violence. And that, as I said earlier, is what we've been seeing in, Roman, in Revelation 8 and 9. That these judgments that are now coming down upon the world are in response to the people of God and their prayers down through the centuries. Remember, as I said, it's not just a one-time prayer that these that is going up before God. This is the incense going up before God from his church in the age in which we live. And as Paul says in Revelation, the, the uh, uh, uh wrath of God is being poured out upon all unrighteousness of men. That's a present tense. It's not waiting till the end time, it's not waiting to the day of judgment. It's the the wrath of God is being manifest against all unrighteousness of, of man. And that, as Revelation tells us, is in response to the prayers of the people of God. These prayers. These prayers. And so the people of God are able to use these prayers discerningly Again, not to get back at someone in a personal vendetta, but having the higher purposes and interests of the church of God and the kingdom of God in mind. One commentator says it is then possible for the faithful today to use these psalms in worship for the good of the church. Another has said that both the New Testament authors portray uh, 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 the, the New Testament authors rather portray themselves as heirs of an Old Testament ethic. That means that the New Testament writers like Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, Paul and all these people who write don't say okay well that's the Old Testament that was David and when he was furious and he was just flying off the handle and work we're, we're, we're gonna forget that and we're going to be just super gracious and just forget forgive whatever people do to us and let the evil prosper and we're not going to pray about it and we're not going to ask God to judge it or do anything about it They don't say that and again that's what surely we've been seeing in our study in the mornings that the very things, these staggering things that God is unleashing on the world is in response to that very thing. That God, God's judgments are unleashed through the prayers of the saints. And so the, 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 those who are being called upon to be judged are not enemies over trivial matters. One person again has said that they are people who hate the faithful precisely because of their faith and and mock God at the same time. So when the New Testament employs these curses, they're simply following an Old Testament pattern. And so Paul says, if we or an angel from heaven should preach unto you another gospel, then what we have preached, let him be accursed, And I say again, if we preach another gospel, let or or anyone preach another gospel, let him be cursed. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, says Paul. Now that's pretty strong language, is it not? Those who preach another gospel, says Paul, I wish they would just go ahead and emasculate themselves. These are very, very strong words. So the New Testament, as, as, as this person has said, the writers of the New Testament see themselves as the heirs. In other words, they're inheriting an Old Testament ethic when it comes to these kinds of prayers, and they say, we can employ them. And so in Acts 4, when the people come back from being persecuted by the leaders, by Herod and Pilate and all these people, they begin to pray. Lord, rise up and show your, show your, uh, your judgments. So let's me let, let let's just read that. Uh, in Acts chapter 4, um, they're, they're praying. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voice and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David uh, uh, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the nations Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves against the rulers who were gathered together, against the Lord and against His anointed. And then he goes on and he says, now Lord, look upon their threats and grant your to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through Your ho- name of your Holy Spirit. Uh, servant Jesus. Now what happens later on? We see the death of Ananias and Sapphira who lied to the Holy Spirit. We see the death of Herod who, who, who accepted praise as a god for himself. He was struck down. What's happening? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what's happening. Any prayer in that regard for the Lord to bring his kingdom will mean disaster for the wicked. When we pray that, again, we, we often, since we've prayed it since we're a little children, we sanitize it, thy kingdom come. We don't even think about what it means. Go back and read some of the old Puritans as they open up. These passages the Lord's Prayer by Thomas Watson and some of these people who lived through persecuting times through governments that were ready to put them to death for preaching the gospel and ask them what it means Thomas Watson had a book called the Lord's Prayer you can get it for free on the internet and he would ask questions like what does it mean to pray thy kingdom come well it means that we are praying that God's rule would be established in our hearts and that of our family, but also that God would judge His enemies. That He would bring down judgment upon them. And again, David is not doing it out of a spirit of hate or out of a spirit of bitterness or rage. What does it say in Acts 4? Lord, David said... In a spirit of fury... No, it says, He said by the Holy Spirit. And that psalm that they quote ends by saying, Kiss the sun, lest you perish in the way when its wrath is kindled. But it's also a hope for conversion of these same people. Derek Kidner says that Paul applies some of these curses in his arguments in Romans 11 in a context in which he expects his fellow Jews eventually to turn from resisting the message of Jesus. He uses these Old Testament curses, applies them to the Jews, but with the hope that they will be turned and believe on Jesus. And so, David is into some pretty heavy theology here. We have to think about who he's say, who is saying it, why he's saying it, and the spirit in which he's saying it. We have to take that psalm and say, can this be applied in a New Testament situation? Can believers in the New Testament age pray these prayers? Is it wrong for the people, the saints in Revelation, as their prayers of of uh, uh, their cries going up before God that he would move in judgment for avenging the blood of the saints. Are they wrong? Was Paul wrong to pray judgment on anyone who preached another gospel? But again, we have to understand that we use these words, these psalms in a particular context when it comes to God's glory, when it comes to God's church, when it comes to the the higher purposes beyond the little old self. It's very much like when Jesus says, you uh, uh, heard it said, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now how was that being used? Was Jesus saying that we should do away with capital punishment? No. That idea was saying There were people going around saying, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. They were applying it to personal grievances. They were personalizing it. But at a governmental level, at an official level, that principle is still applied. But not in a personal level. We don't. We give it over to God. That's why Jesus says... That, we move, that at a personal level, we move away from eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and we say we seek personal reconciliation. We forgive. We, we deal with that at a personal level. But if there is a situation in which the government or the police ought to step in and punish that person for what they've done, maybe they've committed a crime of some sort, then that applies Then David finally says in verse 11, this also is his prayer, but let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Again, much like the other parts of this prayer, these are things that are very strange to our ears. We'll read them. We'll sing them. But do we ever pray these things? Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. When we look around our church at one another and we see fellow believers, let all who take refuge, Lord, here's this person who's sitting next to me, here's this person in the church. Lord, they're taking let them have joy in their heart because they're trusting in you. Uh, Tim again in his prayer mentioned those who are going through times of affliction and and remembering that they that they might rejoice in their affliction that they might find the joy of the Lord even in being going through a difficult time that those who are believers might find hope and joy because they're taking refuge in God this also is David's prayer for the godly. Let them ever sing for joy. Again, David's interest is in God, that He might be glorified and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. Just as he is praying judgment upon the enemies that are coming against God, so in an equal and opposite direction, he's praying for blessing on those who are drawing near to God. And so when it comes to the suffering church, when it comes to our neighbors or people in our church, Lord, may they find comfort in you and drawing near to you. May their hearts rejoice because they are taking refuge in you. For just as you are a God that hates wickedness, you are also a God that delights in righteousness. You delight in people who hope in your mercy. So Lord, let them be glad. Let them be filled with hope. Think about people in your church. Think about people in your family. Think about people around you who may be going through those things. And say, Lord, they are believers. Let them this morning, let them today know of the joy of knowing you because they are taking refuge in you. This is how David prays. And so, as we close, David rejoices in this. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. David is confident that because God is holy, he will move in judgment. He, will, he won't let wickedness go unchecked. But neither will he let, leave the righteous hanging either because he delights in them too. He says, for you bless the righteous because you are righteous. And just as your holy soul recoils from the wicked, so, Lord, you are drawn to the righteous because they hope in you. There's something beautiful in them. You are working something in them. A broken spirit and contrite heart, Lord, you will not despise. And so David prays with confidence. This is what we mean when we pray in His name, according to His will. If any man asks anything in my name, it will be done. If any man asks according to my will, I will do it. And David is praying with such boldness. Isn't he? Because he's praying things that he knows God will act upon. Since he is holy, he will judge the wicked. Since he is gracious and righteous, he will uphold the faithful, he will bless them, he will shield them, he will give them joy. And then that becomes a model for you and I. To start handling these things, to say, man, these are prayers that I need to incorporate into my own thinking. To move away from haphazard, just random, all over the place kind of prayers to start talking God's language and to come at Him with the words that He wants me to come at Him with. To tell Him what He is like. That He is holy and that He is faithful. And that is His desire to judge evil and to bless the righteous. These are then prayers that we can go away from and say, I know the Lord has heard me today. I have confidence in Him. And that my interests are not just local and selfish. Lord, bless this person, get me me out of this situation, and I, I, me, and me, and so on and so forth. But you're saying, as Jesus teaches us, when you pray, say, Our Father, lift your eyes to something greater than yourself. Say, Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Jesus is talking the language of the Old Testament. Jesus is not saying anything in the Sermon on the Mount that the Old Testament wouldn't have already said. He's not reinventing the wheel. And He he doesn't expect us to reinvent the wheel either. But as we've seen, the New Testament inherits the Old Testament ethic The Old Testament spirit of praying to the glory of God and for the good of his kingdom. Let's pray.